Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. with Rabbi Dr. Shai Held, who's a theologian, scholar, and educator, is president, dean, and chair in Jewish thought at Hadar, written many uh, profound books, uh, such as Abraham Joshua Heschel, The Call of Transcendence, which was published in 2013, and The Heart of Torah, a collection of essays on the Torah in two volumes in 2017. And now at work, and our topic today is uh, a book on the centrality of love in Jewish theology, ethics, and spirituality. So, uh, Rabbi Hell, thanks for taking time to talk. Thank you for having me. Great. So, just to jump right in on this topic, um, many oversimplify at times, perhaps, and say uh, they contrast Judaism with Christianity, that Judaism is a religion of justice, Christianity is a religion of love. I wonder uh, your thoughts on that. And also, um, what do you believe is the role of love in general in the, in the Jewish tradition? I know it's a huge topic. Yes, indeed, a huge topic. Um, Yeah, so let me start with this. You know, the history of Christianity was filled with a narrative about Judaism and Islam, for that matter, that Judaism and Islam were fundamentally loveless religions. Christianity was in the world to teach love. Judaism, and again, to some degree, Islam, too, were in the world to teach something else, often kind of seen pejoratively. One of the things that I've been arguing over many years is that one of the consequences of having been a minority culture in mostly Christian countries for so long is that Jews in many ways ended up internalizing that narrative about themselves and about Judaism. So that what started out as a kind of attack on Judaism, that Judaism was not a religion of love, ended up kind of sadly and ironically becoming a point of pride with some Jews. So as you just indicated, you know, people will say things like Christianity is a religion of love, but Judaism is a religion of justice, law, something else. Now, I think also that there was something in the American Jewish experience that would be an interesting project for a historian to try and sort of really isolate how and when this happened, where American Jews who were not so confident in their knowledge of the Jewish tradition often ended up defining Judaism as whatever they imagined Christianity was not. And that's why you got, for example, something that Hebrew school kids all over this country have been taught, right? Christianity is focused on the afterlife. Judaism has no notion on the, of the afterlife, which, of course, is absurd and false. But it's simply about a, a definition of self that's over against something else. And that is profoundly distortive. By the way, it's also distortive of our understanding of Christianity. But more importantly for our purposes it really distorts and leaves a hole at the heart of our understanding of Judaism. And just to give you an example, I think, of how deep this runs, um, a really powerful experience I had many years ago, I was speaking to a group of rabbinical school seniors at one of the major seminaries, and I said something almost in passing about how Jewish theology um, sort of pivots around the claim that God loves us 
and asks us to reciprocate that love. And one of the students sort of murmured in a way that I could hear, wow, you really do hang out with Christians too much. Wow. And I said in that moment, you know, I can't tell you how sad I find that response because what I was thinking of when I said that was shacharit, in which we say, with vast love have you loved us, you should love the Lord your God. That's what I said. I said that Judaism is based on a claim that God loves us and asks us to love God back. And you heard Christianity. And this is a kind of tshuva that we need to do. We need to fix this. It's profoundly broken. Now, I hope in some small way my work in terms of traveling the country, teaching about this, and now writing about it, is an attempt to sort of do a kind of tikkun. I mean, it's not going to be me alone, but I think it's, it's, it's a tikkun that's very necessary. You know, maybe I could take a moment and just add to clarify, when I talk about love, and when I think Jewish sources talk about love, I don't think we're talking about an emotion or an action. I think we're talking about what I would call, for lack of a less pretentious way of putting this, an existential posture, a way of holding ourselves in the world. Um, in, you might say a disposition to feel, think, and act in certain ways. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we begin with the three love commandments in, in the Chumash, in, in, in the Bible, right? Love of neighbor, love of God, and love of the stranger. Uh, and in many ways, I think Jewish ethics, theology, spirituality rotate around those aspirations. Very interesting. You know, I wonder if a part of uh, where that assumption comes from is when those who assume uh, Judaism is primarily a religion of mitzvot, of actions, and Christianity of faith, of the heart, and people think ahava uh, applies primarily to the emotional realm and not the action realm, uh, or, or as you said, the existential disposition that holds a whole bunch of, uh, um, of different realms there. But, but think for a minute about the logic of Sefer Devarim, where we are told, whatever we make of this theologically, that God has fallen in passionate love. God has fallen in love with Israel and asks us to love God back. It is a very odd reading of a text to say, God loves you passionately and asks you to love God back. But by loving God back, God just means following the rules. Mm-hmm. That just seems like a very odd and almost idiosyncratic reading of what's going on there. Another way of saying this is it's never emotion or action in right. Judaism. It's, it's action as manifestation of emotion and also action as eliciting emotion. It's a virtuous cycle, ideally. Right. Right. So another way of saying that, if it's useful, is, you know, the dichotomy of saying Judaism is about love rather than is about law rather than love. I mean, the whole point of, of, you know, biblical and rabbinic theology is that law is itself a manifestation of love. Right? You loved us vastly and you gave us law as an expression of that. Those dichotomies are, I mean, false and destructive. Right. In a, in a, in a partnered relationship or a parent-child relationship, it would be absurd to fulfill duties and have no emotional attachment. It would be absurd to have an emotional attachment and not fulfill duties. I mean, there's a whole range of... Okay. Right. I often talk about when, when people are sort of when I'm trying to bring people in this conversation, I, I give the example of giving your child breakfast. Right. Some days it's a profoundly emotional experience. I, I, I have the privilege of, you know, helping this person grow. Some days it's kind of just something that I have to do. But the aspiration is that the action that I am engaged in is an expression of and in turn deepens the love that I feel for this person. I think that that's actually a very powerful model for the spiritual life, or if you prefer a more traditional way of saying it, for Avodah Hashem. Right, great. 
You know, some have suggested that um, justice is for the public realm and love is for the private realm. And I wonder this idea that love is not something so special to be to be uh, intimate, but love is something public. How mm -hmm. do we balance the love of Jewish people with the love of Gentiles and love of those in our closest familial social circles with the love of strangers? And is love always the right language um, for any for any relationship? Right. Well, let me actually start with the last thing you said, because okay. that's the that's the only one that I feel like I can answer easily. Okay. I think I think love is not always the right term in the sense that I don't think anything is always the right term. Right. I think one of the things I admire about Jewish theology and Jewish spirituality is our willingness and even eagerness to embrace complexity. Do I think love always has a place in the calculus of how we carry ourselves in the world? For sure. But I would never want to say that love alone is always the right way to talk about things. So. But, but to go to your question about love of Jews and love of everyone, you know, I think this is a place where, from my perspective, Jewish ethics and a lot of debates in contemporary moral philosophy have interesting things to say to one another. Because as I understand it, I think Jewish ethics at its ideal, and it doesn't mean there aren't moments where we fail at this or that fall short of it, but begins with local, intimate, what philosophers would call partial love, partial as in the sense of partiality to someone, right, begins there and ideally expands outward. I love my children, and through that, I learn to love other children, and through being loved, I learn to love. So the intimate sphere is the place where I learn love. A family is ideally a laboratory for love. I love my kids and therefore enable them to live lives of love, thereby enable them to live lives of love. The challenge to that, which I think is actually very powerful, the challenge to that is that philosophers who advocate for a kind of thorough impartiality will say, let's be honest, family first all too often translates into family only, right? That's, that's the honest truth. And, you know, look, I am not a fan of Peter Singer, Singer's version of impartiality because I think it's deeply pr problematic philosophically, but I am actually very sympathetic to what motivates it. What motivates it is a sense that, okay, so most people care about their family and maybe the two families that live next door, mm -hmm. but they don't end up pushing themselves beyond a certain kind of sphere. And yet it seems to me that the idea that we should begin with an impartial love for everyone is at the end of the day, for most people, a prescription for not loving anyone at all, because it's simply not how human beings function. To come at that from another direction, the problem with things like Peter Singer is that it assumes a disembodied self. I'm not located in space and time. So a child who's dying in front of me and a child dying in Sri Lanka make the same moral claim on me. I don't think that's quite right, right? Because I don't think it wrestles with, Kaddish Baruch Hu gave me a body. I exist in space. Again, the problem is that most of us assume that a child dying in front of us makes a claim on us, and a child dying in Sri Lanka is on some level irrelevant, even though we wouldn't put it that way, probably, because we're not that crude. So the question is, I think, can we find a way to let ethical traditions that honor and begin with intimacy and family and friendship begin there, but really prod us to go outward, to go outward from there? I would say that I think there is a way in which the Chumash, the Bible, is trying to do that. Um, something that I have found incredibly moving, um, learning this from the world of biblical scholarship, all over the ancient Near East, all over, 
people are preoccupied with the status of widows and orphans in society. That is in no way unique to Tanakh, right? Where Tanakh is unique is expanding the category of the widow and the orphan to include the ger, which means, of course, biblically, not the convert, but the outsider who is not part of your family, not kin to you, not even part of your covenant, you know, um, your covenantal group, but an outsider who comes seeking shelter among you and saying, it is not just the ger and the yatom, the uh, yatom and the almana, excuse me. It is the ger, the yatom and the almana, which is another way of saying in Jewish ethics, in biblical ethics, we care not just for our vulnerable, but for the vulnerable. And that's the moral revolution right there. That is it. I'm just not sure we can get there by bypassing the local. I love that. You know, and, and I think that, that while I think Singer is an incredible challenge to us today. Um, Agreed, as I said. That, that I had never thought of this point, that our physical presence is in some way a check on the impartiality. And I think uh, you know, that concrete lived experience is, I don't know if it's a Jewish contribution or a guy held contribution or, or whose contribution it is, but I think it's important. Um, so thank you. Um, so, so lastly, to move to the conceptual, to the practical, um, you know, I'm saying slichot this morning and I'm thinking at the end of the day, I'm just like, okay, at the end of the day, this is all about being more compassionate, more merciful. You know, mm-hmm. like whatever else I can get out of this, if we can achieve that. And I wonder with Rosh Hashanah coming up, you know, someone might say, hey, I really agree, uh, Rabbi Held, on the, these points. This is beautiful. How do I do this? How do I actually become a more loving person? How do I recommit to more acts of love? I know many folks who can philosoph- do philosophical acrobats around this or, or pray day in and day out. But how do I actually bring Ahava, Rachamim, um, you know, uh, you know, th- you know, these ideas into my daily lived experience. Yeah, I think that's a really powerful question. And I sort of want to underscore why, which is that I think in the experience of many American Jews, including many religiously observant Jews, Judaism is often very good at telling them or us the what and a little weaker at the how. The number of American Jews I know who say, okay, I get the what, now I'm going to go look for a Buddhist meditation to teach me the how. Not that I have a problem inherently with that, but I think there's something really kind of sad about that perception of Judaism. One thing that I would say to start, and I want to try to say this in as nuanced a way as I can, is the Rambam's embrace of Aristotle's notion of habituation is really important. But I want to clarify what I think the Rambam means by habituation. You sometimes hear people say that the way you learn to care about people is to act in the way you would act if you cared about them. And eventually, you know, as the Sefer Achinuch will put it, right, the heart will follow the deed. Um, but I think it's very unlikely that the Rambam thinks there is some automatic process here, that if I do things enough times, I'll start to feel them. Because after all, if I do Bikr Cholim, if I visit the sick kicking and screaming 50 times, I will habituate myself into visiting the sick kicking and screaming. What I think the Rambam is saying and what 20th century Musa writers say very explicitly is that I have to habituate myself with an explicit intention of the heart that I hope this opens me, Right. I walk into a hospital room and I say, right now, this is nothing but scary. I don't want this to be nothing but scary, right? So there's some way in which 
habituation is kind of practicing as if I have a virtue that I don't yet have. And that includes emotion, intention, and action. Again, going back in a way to where we started. Now, that said, what the Rambam doesn't say, because as a, you know, in, in, in medieval Jewish thought, you simply don't have this language yet. There's the work of getting to know ourselves and what our obstacles are. You know, to me, working with young adults, one of the things that is really, really important is if you want to teach people to live compassionate lives, you also have to find ways to enable them to talk about what's scary about that. Mm-hmm. You know, at Hadar, one of the reasons why we started taking all of our full-time students to visit Alzheimer's patients, it was essentially twofold. One is that there are so many Alzheimer's patients who have no one to visit them, which is the first, and I would say that the first and foremost reason. But the second one, which is no small thing, is I found it to be an enormously powerful way to get young adults to talk about being scared. And I thought if we could talk about what scares us about other people's pain, we might learn not to be governed by that fear. We can actually, okay, you know what? I'm scared. I'm many things right now, but fear doesn't have the final word. I'm a little scared, but I'm going to sit here because this person needs me. And over time, I can learn to be actually less scared and more fully present. So that's, I think, you know, how how we might start. Um, I think there is a lot more you can say. I mean, one of the things that in my own life I have tried to do, even though, you know, I've never really said this out loud because I don't know exactly how it'll sound. But, you know, when I'm around people who seem very different from me in ways that elicit from me a kind of almost like quasi-xenophobic reaction, I don't understand what you're saying. I don't know what's happening here. You know, what I try to do is simply take a deep breath and say, this person is at Selim Elohim and God loves this person and expects me to also. So whatever kind of defensive crouch you might be going into because it feels foreign, take a deep breath. That is not the part of you that you are meant to nurture. So let's nurture the part that's curious about other people, that embraces them, that sees them as a revelation of the sacred, nothing less than that. Beautiful. So beautiful and so powerful. One final follow-up question about what you just said. How much of this work should begin in relationship to the other as compared to within the self? When you talk about this habituation and this intentionality, there's the Buber Levinas fashion of kind of being struck and startled and morally, morally compelled by this encounter with the other. And then there's this private work about the tikkunats me, the repair of myself, becoming a being, an agent of love. And it might be relative to each person, or do you think that, that it starts in relationship or it starts in isolation? Yeah, so I actually think that what you just said is probably right. There is no universal prescription here. It's really about getting to know yourself. And as a, as a, as a rabbi, a mentor, whatever, it's getting to know, you know what is going on for this person. One of the reasons that I mentioned not just habituation, but also going inside was precisely a way of talking about there's an outer work. I learn to love by loving, but there's also an inner work. I learned to love by figuring out what blocks me from loving. I don't think that, you know, any amount of just doing outer work is going to heal all the things that get in the way. There really is a value in knowing who we are and knowing where we get stuck. And that's very, very hard. Look, I think where I think Jewish ethics, um, where halacha is really powerful in this way is it doesn't allow us to say, okay, I'm going to go into a room for 47 years and cure all my suffering. And then when I come out and I'm ready to retire, I'll give a little love in the world. It doesn't allow us to do that. It asks us constantly to move back and forth. That's less neat, but I also think it's more real. Yeah. Yeah. 
Amazing. Well, thank you so much. And uh, we can't wait. To thank you. Friends, make sure to pick up uh, Rabbi Scheihel's book on, on, on Heschel, on his Torah commentaries, and coming up soon, The Centrality of Love in Jewish Theology, Ethics, and Spirituality. Rabbi Hel, keep up your amazing work. Oh, and come learn at Yeshiva Tadar with, uh, with Shai and all the others, all the other great Thank editors. you, Rav Shmuley. Good Thanks to so see you. Thanks,